Welcome to The 94 Project, my name is Lindo. On this first episode, I am in conversation with journalist Clement Manyatela and we are discussing the role of the media in a South African democracy. Enjoy the conversation. I think I first want to sort of like get a sense of how you, you got into journalism. Um, you know, the, sort of when, you, when people talk about their professions, sort of like two camps. Um, of people who have always known this is what I want to do from like primary high school they go into varsity and know exactly what they want to do and then there's another camp of people who sort of um, find themselves in matric and they open up a prospectus and the first thing they see is journalism and they're like okay let's do that like I just want to find out how how you got into the industry so I never wanted to be a journalist in fact mm-hmm. I didn't understand much about journalism I remember when I finished uh, matric I studied at the university at the at TUT first before I went to the University of Pretoria because there were okay. issues with our, our metric results. Because mm-hmm. yeah, this <laughs> it's, it's always Malana. It's always Malana. Yeah. <laughs> it's always us. So there was a whole big investigation about you know this coping um, scandal mm. and and as a result, that delayed our, our metric results. And mm-hmm. TUT was the only institution that would accept some of us. So I went to TUT, I did a course called language practice. And I okay. did a little bit of French. Uh, I did a little bit of um, IT. Uh, so it was a little bit of this and that English um, as, okay. a module, as a module as well. And then, and then I only did that for a year so that I can wait for all of my results to come mm. and I can properly, because I had applied at VETS for biological sciences, applied at um, University of Pretoria for law. So mm-hmm. when my results finally came, then I decided, okay, I'm leaving TUT because I never wanted to go to TUT. Yeah. I went to yeah. And that's when I enrolled for journalism mm. because at the time I was like, mm, I think I want to do something related to TV or radio, but journalism yeah. was not it. I was thinking, ooh. Uh, present on Selima Tunzi, you know, <laughs> <top billing>. <laughs> <laughs> not you revealing your age. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, that's that's really how I got into journalism, and then I mm. studied journalism at the University of Pretoria, and then only in, my, in like my third year, then did I start falling in love with this mm. medium, and I'm like, this is cool. Yeah. Um, and I think I was being exposed because I was working at the Pretoria News. I used to work there over the weekend. I used to go write stories, I would be sent on assignments, and that's when I realized that there's something here uh, that really sounds interesting. And I think that's really mm. when my passion for journalism yeah. started, when I was like in late second year. Late, yeah, into your degree. Yeah. yeah. Very interesting. That, the French course you took explains a lot. <laughs> it explains a lot. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, although I have to say, I did uh-huh. forget some, because I, I did it for a year, so you, know, uh, so you can imagine, it's only like the basics, the basics so I forgot yeah. some of it, but now I'm, okay. I'm, I'm, I'm doing French again, I'm studying French uh-huh. again with the okay. answer, so that's why you're going to hear me a lot on air talking and speaking Oh French. god, <laughs> okay, but I mean, I, 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 don't, I don't think anyone's complaining, I don't think anyone's complaining. <laughs> But sort of yeah. maybe just to, to now get into the um, substance of things, what I want to try and do with um, this podcast is sort of trace the promises of 94, 
the big democratic project um, in South Africa. Um, you know, some may argue that 30 years is not, you know, a very long time, but I think it is important for us to really start a process of tracking um, how well we're doing in terms of keeping those promises that, that were made um, with the democratic project. And sort of one of the uh, pillars of the, of the 94 project was that in, in New South Africa, there would be this robust media that would actually be free, it would be independent, and that it would actually fulfill the function of actually holding the state accountable, which prior to 94, that was something that we had never seen in South Africa before. I mean, we had, we had had a press, um, we had had an independent press, but much of it was very small. Um, the apartheid government, I think, really made sure that it really subdued those voices, um, even though there were these people who still, you know, did the job. I mean, <clears throat> um, our favorite person, um, Helen Zilla, was able to expose the killing of Steve Pico, you know, because there was some sort of a press, right? <laughs> even, though, even though it wasn't, you know, largely independent. So I sort of want to get your sort of like thinking um, about the role of the media um, in this New South Africa. But I want to ask a more pointed question to say that, and I mean, so you've had a couple of years experience in journalism. When you, when you got into the industry, when you interact with you and your colleagues, um, you've also worked for a couple of media houses as well. Is, it, is that mandate, which is to hold the state accountable, front of mind um, for journalists as well as news corporations or does everyone kind of just do their job and hope and pray that you know the mandate will be fulfilled or is that something that you keep center of mind to say this is the reason why we're in this profession so i think that comes with, with experience i mean when i think about my days as as a young journalist working for power fm as a young journalist working for eyewitness news i wasn't thinking about my role as um, being intentional about holding the executive accountable or in fact across all fears of government. Uh, I used to think I'm here to tell stories. I'm here to tell mm -hmm. people's stories on the ground. Um, and I think when you grow in, in the profession, you start realizing that this is a very powerful role um, and there are more responsibilities that you have as a journalist. Mm -hmm. And I think I'm at the stage in my life where that role is becoming mm. more pronounced in every conversation that I do um, mm. with these people that are key figures in society. Yeah. So to, to answer the question, at some point, it's not what you're thinking about. It's, it's that you've been sent to a press conference as a young reporter, you're reporting about yeah. Nkandla, uh, you're asking questions, but you're not thinking that is um, the intention there is to hold the executive accountable. You're thinking, well, mm -hmm. Um, I need to file, I need to get as much information I can have and it needs to go on air uh, through the bulletins. But yeah, right mm -hmm. now, in my career and also over the last couple of years, I'm more intentional about it. In fact, mm -hmm. I've gotten to a point in my career that I scrutinize everything that yeah. politicians say. I scrutinize yeah. every statement they say. So if you've picked up even on my show i don't like talking about the state capture report as soon as it's out because i've not read it so i prefer to go and read though every detail of a statement i prefer mm. to go read the anc discussion policy document i prefer to go read this da um policy on triple bee so that i've got a broader mm. understanding and when i speak to these politicians i'm able to point out where the loopholes are and where mm. they're failing to address perhaps 
what um, the people are expecting from them, whether it's opposition yeah. parties or it's the governing party. Yeah, and I, and I think, you know, sort of part of the reason why I wanted to start with that question is that it does sort of like come through, I think, most especially um, as people who look at the media through a critical lens, right, that when, you know, often when I read stories, or when I hear um, reporting done on certain issues, it, it does really feel like an information regurgitation that, you know, this person said that you know that like that's that and there isn't really any sort of real interrogation of the story there's no interrogation of the statements that are being made you you can often tell when a journalist is not well read yeah. that they'll just say oh this person said that and it's like okay and <laughs> like what's the sort of what, what what's the follow-up on that I, I, and, and sort of do, do you think yeah sure go on yeah so sorry, Linda. I, I think the problem with that is that we're not reading, mm-hmm. um, and that's a problem. And and I have been there in my career back in the days when, um, if if there's a report that's been released, all I'm doing is I just want to report about the highlights, and I go to the mm-hmm. conclusion and the findings, and I'm not going to every detail mm-hmm. of how the you know whether it's the public protector or the auditor general, whoever um, authored that report, what led to their findings right and i used to be the guy that just reports about what the politicians are saying Um, and that's the problem and you can pick it up and i mean it frustrates me now uh especially when i hear a more experienced journalist who talks about something (laughs) and you can pick up that they've not taken yeah like you don't know it's like no let's not do that for me yeah that's when we take our listeners for granted when you do and practice that kind of lazy journalism Mm. that says a lot about how you view your audience, right? And how seriously or not seriously you take them. And I think Mm. that's the problem. We just need to read because if I'm here and I am serving thousands of people listening to me on my show, the very least I can do is to prepare for any conversation that I'm going to have. Yeah. And and like, I know like all of you, like as journalists rather, like you know each other, um, you, when you attend these press conferences and you have to wait outside, the obviously relationships and stuff that form um there and especially within the south african um context, I, I don't know maybe maybe it happens you know behind the scenes and you don't see it but it does feel that um within the journalism fraternity that there isn't um any substantive holding each other accountable um where you say hey i saw that story you filed just a couple of things or you know they or maybe someone calls you after an interview and said i listened to that and you you let them go. You didn't touch on you know um, important issues, but I, and and I, I think I'm more expected from the most senior journalists within the field sort of reach out to 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 to, to number one look at what the younger guys do first of all, and so also like reach out to say you know like I don't think that was in depth enough or you didn't touch on this, you didn't touch on that. Is that is that something that you guys are doing in the background or is that like an area of improvement, something that you as journalists needs to start focusing on doing? So let's start with the senior journalists who are looking down on the younger journalists. I think there's a culture that's been created in this country where the approach that the senior journalists are taking, for me, is a little problematic because it comes, you know, it doesn't come from from a perspective of trying to better someone and trying to let them see where the wrongs are, but it comes from the approach of self-importance and trying to appear as I am the you know, I know it all, yeah. and you guys don't know, don't know what you're doing. So that's the first thought. 
first point. You've got other senior journalists um, who just don't know how to mentor younger journalists and, mm. and, and, and demonstrate to them where they can do wrong. In fact, their approach is quite um, it's quite aggressive and it's quite mm. self-centered. So that's the yeah. first thing. Um, the second thing I want to say about that is I, I think there's always room for improvement. I think we can do more so that when Lindo does something, or uh, makes a mistake or, or doesn't properly prepare for an interview or um, you know says something that, that's not factual. When I correct him, I don't appear as though I mm. am jealous or I don't appear yeah. as though I'm attacking him. Mm. Um, and maybe that's that's the conversation we need to have around creating the spaces for us to have these frank conversations. Mm. But for me, I mean, where I work, I mean, Bongani, uh, Bingwa and I have created a, a relationship that literally allows for each other to check on what we do. So when mm. Bongani makes a mistake on air, or I feel he's been unfair about something, I mm. will send him a message and say, hmm, that's not mm. really what it says. Similarly with me, when I do something, when I say something, he will give me feedback and say, I don't think this was approached well, or I feel you didn't touch on this as properly as you should have. Yeah, I've got friends in the industry who are in other media houses, mm. and we tell each other that we've created that space yeah. that allows for self-correction, the space that allows for a frank assessment of each other's work. Mm. It's hard to receive feedback, feedback and hear your yeah. friend or your colleague say, you know what, your it interview wasn't good. with Helen <laughs> sucked. Because of one, <laughs> but it's important. Yeah. I like feedback. I'm a sucker uh, for uh. feedback um, because I know that there's always a way to improve. So I'm mm. happy within my circle of friends and my circle of colleagues that yeah. that space has been created for uh, for us to check on each other and, and correct each other. But yeah. is that is that so clear and so more pronounced in the broader journalism industry? I'm not so sure, and I think mm. the space for us. To improve more in calling each other out mm. right without being seen as attacking each other yeah. but our approach needs to be clear that you're not coming from a position of thinking you are better than anybody and you don't make mistakes mm. but you come from a position of saying here's where i think you can improve and i'm glad you brought up the helens in the interview because yeah, that was, <laughs> that was i don't think that was your finest work <laughs> yeah so Look, you know, when, when I did the interview, I remember I've interviewed Helen Zeller before. I've had mm. so many fights with her on mm. air, right? And and I know how the conversation is going to go with Helen because yeah. Helen, in her nature, is condescending. She's mm. patronizing. Mm. You know Helen Zeller. And mm. when I did that interview, I remember telling a friend of mine that going into that interview, I'm literally... I want to avoid a situation where we're going to end up screaming at each other. Yeah. Um, so when I went into that interview, that was my purpose because I knew mm. when she was coming in, even when she got into the studio, she says, you know, she was making remarks about, yeah, uh, I need to look at you in the eye, you know, uh, because I know this and this and that. So, so for me, I mean, and, and, and that's a lesson that I've taken that sometimes when you take that approach of not wanting to end up having a screaming match, mm. um, you are probably not going to get so much mm. from the guest, right? Yeah. Um, so maybe the, the idea now is when you do the interview, just go into it and have it. If it ends up mm. in a screaming match, let it be. But the point is 
you are raising something and you want something out of that interview as opposed yeah. to let it just unfold and and i think that's one of the lessons i took from that interview because i think even with that one i know more especially with the audience that you have that a lot of people in as much as they were not expecting a screaming match but they were expecting a significant amount of pushback and um so i have a friend we both um listen to your show and we were texting um after the interview and i remember saying that um to to say the extent i'm not mad at the interview because i also felt like you lifted to hang herself um quote unquote cuz she said things that i was like Clement cannot let this go like and you 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 can kind of like didn't you know push back on it and then at the end of the day at the end of the interview everyone was like what the hell did she say <laughs> i mean people in langa like it's better to be poor in langa everyone was like excuse me like what's going so so you know to some extent maybe sometimes it's good to just you know let, let people leave themselves hang themselves to try and then you know let people say their piece and then they have to face the the repercussions of that after instead of you trying to sort of like um uh, uh, like have that like screaming competition on yeah on yeah. because I, i i mean even with the langa comment i mean when she said that um i did come back and ask but that's not uh, right for people in Langa and, and and in my mind I was thinking okay fine so when you look at what Helen Villa said you can make an argument that she is wrong in terms of trying to put poverty on a hierarchy mm-hmm. and trying to say that you know when you are poor and living you're living in this area you've got a better life but when you are poor living in this other area your life is more is much more terrible because poverty is poverty right exactly um, yeah. the, the fact that yeah so so poverty is poverty at the end of the day it doesn't have hierarchy but here's the problem though with the statement or from where i was sitting at the time the statement was made when you look at the reports that have been produced in the past about what is the auditor general or um it's it's the stats uh, say when you look at the reports they produced around the quality of services mm-hmm. they do tell you that the western cape does provide better services like the western yeah. cape government even yeah. though those services may be maybe better in the more suburban areas than they That's are exactly what I was um, say, yeah. in in langa but you and i how do we measure that how do mm. we measure that when you are in langa you don't have better running water you don't have better storage than when you are in alexandra and in mm. tembisa and when she made that statement i remember texting people from salga our te- our testing people from the auditor general's office i was testing people from stats sa mm. uh senga maluleke the the statistician general because i was so desperate to find a paper through which i can base mm. my dispute of what she says or my mm. acceptance of what she says and i don't think we've got that mm. we don't have that we've got nothing on paper that says when you are in jobek tembisa um and alexandra there's more there's proper storage system there's more running water there are more chances of you having electricity or if it's in the townships that are in the western cape so yes you and i knew people are going to be so outraged about it but as a journalist sitting there is my job to be outraged at the comment or is my job to try and look at what the factual analysis is and at that yeah. point if i disputed what she says on the basis of whether or not um in the townships in langa in the townships in alex and tembisa things are better there's no paper 
through which I can base that, that on. you could have. And, and, and that's fair. And I also think that that's probably sort of one of the reasons why a figure like Helen Zeller is very appealing to um, sort of like white liberal communities and that she does sort of like come with these like facts, right? But then obviously then the facts are like entirely and completely distorted. And also these facts are more often than not very antithesis to people's like actual experiences. Because I, I mean, like I, 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 like I much as I've never lived in Langa, um, but I did grow up in a township. And so when I like see pictures and videos and things like that of, of what Langa looks like, I couldn't imagine that being on a day-to-day basis that being vastly different from someone again. And I've I've lived close to Alex before, as opposed to someone who lives in Alex. So and, and, and as much as we, we could have we could make that moralistic argument about poverty is poverty. But as you mentioned, if there's uh, a toilet there and there isn't a toilet there whereas both people are poor you know she's kind of she's making a point even though it's not a it's not a full point and it's not a point that's comprehensive that takes into account everything that takes into account the substance of poverty she's making a point about probably toilets and it's not just generalizing right because she made a general statement but she could then come back and say and say here there's a running toilet there there's a running toilet tell me that this is not better Right, and also, so we kind of know that it's not better, but then she's coming with these like phony, phony points and phony arguments that you know would be very hard to to argue against. But you know, whilst we're talking about sort of measuring things, I'm I, I, I'm sort of like really struggling about how to measure whether or not in the in the thirty years, um, well, roughly thirty years post-democracy, whether or not the media has really succeeded in um, the function of holding the, the, the state accountable. And I'm curious about how you, sort of, how you sort of think through whether or not that function has been successfully carried out. Um, obviously with you know, areas of improvement, but broadly speaking, how do, you sort of look at, how do you sort of measure whether or not the media has been successful in, in holding the state accountable? So that's been one of our primary roles um, as the media. And, and I think, I mean, when you look at what has been exposed, right? What the state has been responsible for that's been exposed. It's the work of the media, right? Of course, mm. with the help of whistleblowers within the state. But you've had a, a vibrant media, especially through investigative journalism, mm. uh, that have managed to really expose some terrible things um, in, in, in government. So first, the, the first point I want to make is investigative journalism in this country has just been exceptional. Mm-hmm. And I'm so glad about, you know, the guarantees that the constitution has given free, play, uh, free press, the guarantees that the constitution has given us as the media in order to even um, request and demand certain information that leads to uh, more information being exposed about the shenanigans of government. Um, But apart from investigative journalism, you know, we have created platforms, whether it's on television or on radio, where we have been holding the executive accountable. Um, I think, you know, I try make sure that every single week, at least we've got an interview, whether we're talking to the CEO of the Helen Joseph Hospital um, or the MEC of Health in Gauteng, and we're talking about the inefficiencies of the health system, or we're talking about the head of infrastructure in the office of the presidency, about the failures um, of, of ensuring that there's more investment in infrastructure, of ensuring that the projects 
right from the beginning phases are properly um, are properly um, established and built so that when they go to the market, um, the market is able, even the financial um, um, organization, they're able to say, ah, that is the project that we're going to finance. Um, or you're speaking to the Minister of Public Service and Administration and you're holding him accountable about the state of the public service um, in the country. Our platforms on television, on radio, um, we speak to people who tell us about their experiences. Mm. We speak to people who tell us about their unhappiness with the fact that 20 million rand is going to be spent on a flag by the arts and culture <laughs> department. And our job, right, our job is to then bring in those politicians and ask them the relevant questions about why they're spending so much money, um, how they're spending it, and, and where this money could be better used. The problem, though, is not all politicians, right, present themselves to be held accountable. I mean, look yeah. at the, the issue around the 22 million, the 20 million rand that's going to be spent by the arts and culture department. Do you know how many producers and presenters have been pitching interviews with the Minister mm. of Arts and Culture? Where have you mm. been into an interview? No way. He's yeah. only just spoken in Parliament, he's left it there. So you've got ministers who don't necessarily... I mean, look at Praveen Gordon. When last did you hear Praveen Gordon do an interview and be held accountable for ESCO? You know that, how many times that's he a, has that's been That's the minister that me so much. That's the minister that me so much. I have no idea where he is. I, like, I, like, I don't see yeah. him. And um, someone who actually follows the, the media and also who's kind of, like, interested in knowing, like, what's happening with ESCO and, like... um. SAA and all of these um, um, state of entities, and he's literally no TDC. Like, actually no yeah. TDC. Yeah, so there's so, one thing to say, the journalists have this responsibility, but if if the politicians themselves are not making themselves available to be held accountable, then, you know, that, hmm. there's no synergy there. Then we are not going to end up... Because the problem is, their argument is often that, and I remember even with the Takato Consortium, the SAA deal, I've yeah. been trying to get the DG of, of the Public Enterprises Department, and their explanation was, well, we are going to appear before Parliament, and, and we're going to explain to the Committee of Parliament. The problem with that level of oversight and accountability is that the people in Parliament are from political parties, right? Mm. And most of the chairpersons of these committees often even protect um, yeah. some of these ministers so you can't really say that is true accountability so which is where the media then steps in because when i speak to Pravin Gordon, i don't speak to him as an ally i don't speak as to a, him as a comrade we are comrades in the anc yeah. i speak to him as someone who represents the views of south africans and who's carrying their frustrations and their mm -hmm. questions about why escom is failing um and i'm here to present them to him and give him an opportunity to respond to the failures or the perceived failures um, of the power utility. So yeah. I think we've done really well, um, even with Parliament. I mean, Parliament is supposed to exercise its oversight responsibility. But if you remember the Constitutional Court's judgment on Nkandla, it mm. found Parliament wanting. It, the yeah. Parliament had failed to exercise that responsibility. Mm. It didn't hold even the former President Jacob Zuma accountable. And our job as the media was to bring that Parliament, you know, bring Balek Ambet and say, but you failed your job yeah. literally to just hold these people accountable and you failed to do that yeah. and and that's been where we exist to fill that gap but on the on the part about um parliament i 
I'm definitely someone who has been incredibly frustrated with um, how the media deals with parliament and how the media handles parliament, particularly the news media that is. And that I do feel that parliament only gets a spotlight when there's a big event or when the, on whatever is happening in parliament has enough drama that it would have your open line flashing and that it would bring people to click on the YouTube clips and, and, and tune into the news. And I, and this is just my, my own personal observation that I feel like there isn't any ongoing reporting on, on parliament, that there isn't any reporting on parliament on like day-to-day issues, right? So if I, if I think about, and I actually did perform this exercise uh, a couple of weeks back, where I wanted to find out, because Parliament hasn't, well, besides the um, Scopa, Busisue, Maruso thing, Parliament hasn't really been, you know, hectic in the news in the past couple of weeks. And I wanted to find out, like, what is Parliament doing, right? Like, what sort of, in what stage are they on? What kind of work are the different committees working on? What bills are being pushed through? What bills are stuck? you know, what, what's the reason for those bills being stuck, things like that. And I found it incredibly difficult to source information, current information that is, um, on, on work that's been done in Parliament. So now I, I agree when there are big things like Uganda, when the Scopa thing happened, um, when it's public protector interviews, when those kinds of things happen, there is um, very big eyeballs or a lot of eyeballs on, on Parliament. But in terms of the boring work right that parliament does um i do think that the that the media shies away from that and i mean like i i get it it could be a resourcing issue um you know because the the the, the those constraints as well but on, on the parliament on the parliament side i do feel that there there isn't really any consistent effort to to really cover parliament outside of the big events no i agree with you um i do agree with you that we we don't spend a lot of time in scrutinizing the work of parliament which is quite the critical work, right, what they do, uh, they're not just holding these committees and, excuse me, and holding the executive accountable, but they're passing bills, um, they're debating bills. And I think where we probably falter as the media is to get in when it's something that is controversial, you know, or um, if, if it's something, you know, that, 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 has been so you know exposed and has made people so angry and that's where we step in but i do think we need more time we need to focus some more time on looking at the work that parliament does they're critical bills i mean things like i mean i remember when we when operation Tudula was coming in and it was just being introduced and there was a big hoo-ha about it you know i i remember you know speaking to the labor department and I had remembered that, my goodness, I once interviewed Lisa, um, her name is Lisa, I'm forgetting her surname, but she's a member of parliament mm. for the IFP. Mm-hmm. I remember interviewing her many years ago about the bill um, that she had introduced in parliament that would ensure that there are quotas um, yeah. in, 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 in our, in our labour, in our employment policy. So there mm-hmm. would be a quota for this industry or for the company of how many South Africans um, you can employ. And I remember when the Labour Department came with their bill that also introduces quotas, mm-hmm. I mean, that was seen as something new, but it yeah. wasn't because the IFP had already presented this yeah. bill in Parliament many years ago. But you see, mm-hmm. because we have not focused, right, yeah. on what Parliament does and even what the smaller parties are doing through the introduction of these bills, 
when then government comes with these bills and we think oh that's so innovative mm-hmm. you know that's them being you know proactive when actually that's not necessarily the case yes there's issues around resources we can have a discussion about that but i think i mean for instance what stops us in my show from having a feature every friday that looks at the work yeah. of parliament you get what i mean so that that because a lot of people there's a lot for people to know about the work that the legislature does Exactly. Other than just the yeah. committee meeting and the bill and, and the big the, the whole lot of yeah. processes. Yeah, yeah. I mean, t- totally agreed. Um, and then, sort of, in the the, the other thing that I've um, uh, noticed, especially, you know, the EFF press conferences are the bane of my existence. I have grown an incredibly big dislike for those things, partly because. More often than not, journalists have really constructed Julius Malema as a political analyst, um, as opposed to the leader of the third of the second biggest um, opposition party in this country. When you watch any press conference by the EFF, the um, Julius Malema will present his speech or whatever he wants to talk about there'll be one or two questions regarding the actual thing that he said or something about the EFF but 90% of the of the of the questions is him being asked to comment on things happening in the state things happening in social politics um things happening in social media things happening in the ANC and i i can i can accept the fact that he has um an incredible amount of institutional knowledge as far as the ANC is concerned. Um, I can accept the fact that he, better than most people, um, understands the inner workings of, of the ANC. But there really is, I think, a fundamental failure to really zoom in on his own party and, and their policies and their politics and those kinds of things because everyone is rushing to ask him about what he thinks about Gwene Mandashe or who's going to be the top six of the ANC. Like, for instance, you, you, you hardly watch an EFF presser and he's asked anything about his economic policies, his healthcare policies. Well, they ask him about like land and you know, stuff like that, like those really big things. Whereas if you open the EFF manifesto, I think I actually think the EFF man- manifesto, well, at least the one that they released for um, 20, um, what was the last national elections? 2019. Was it last year? Yeah, the the, the last um, the, the last local government elections and the last national um, elections. That was one of the most comprehensive manifestos I've, I've ever seen. It covered such a wide a wide range of issues. Whereas the only really the only real policies that people associate the EFF with is expropriation of land without compensation and nationalization of certain industries. And I think that really does um, it does a disservice to the EFF itself, right? Because I mean, like, so for for an example, they have really good policies about how to roll out um, gender affirming healthcare to trans people. How many Trump people know about that, right? And then, like, so, how many of them would actually consider the EFF as a legitimate political organization if they knew that they had a comprehensive plan to roll out gender-affirming healthcare to them? So, I think this sort of concentration of the media on on um, constructing the EFF and Julius Malema same thing really does a disservice to the EFF itself and even the news organization um, on its own. But the point that I want to drive. Uh, on a drive at also is that there has sort of because of people who've worked in journalism for so long um and also sort of the very personal nature of the job that you have 
quite a number of journalists who develop personal relationships with uh, politicians. Um, and, or people, do, and also because you see these people you know, so much, you frequent the same spaces, that at some point you become cool with each other. And so I sort of want to get your, your sort of thinking about how those relationships play out, especially on whether or not the journalist is still able to do their job. Um, and also, is there some sort of ethics code that journalists have in terms of your interactions with the people that you're supposed to be holding accountable? So there's nothing that bars us from having personal relationships with politicians. Um, uh, nothing completely. Why? Because especially when you cover politics, much of what you rely on is information you get from sources. How do you get sources? You start relationships with these politicians and you get them to trust you, right? How do you get them to trust you is to have a relationship. So. It's inevitable that, especially when you do politics, and I have covered politics for EWN for a while, and yeah. that's what we did. Like, you form a relationship with someone. Of course, there are no conditions in that relationship in that, mm-hmm. oh, if you trust me, you give me information, then I'm going to be soft on you. I can tell you there are a lot of journalists who think, because I've provided you with that valuable information that was exclusive to you, you also owe me. And it's always important for us as journalists to remind them that I'm here to do my job. If, yeah. if you want to, vo- if you don't want to give me information or you want to give me information with conditions, then I do not want it and I'm not going to use it. So it's important to always point that out. So that's the first part, right? Um, you have to build these relationships so that people can trust you because nobody is going to speak to you about Mm-hmm. and give you that valuable information you need when you don't have a relationship with them. I can tell you that much. Um, the interviews that I get on my show, um, especially the ministers, it's because of the relationship I have with them. My producers will go to them, uh, or their team. So my producers will go get their, you know, their chief of staff or whatever to ask for an interview with a specific minister. And then the chief of staffs are frustrating the process. When my producers told me that, oh, we can't get this person because of this. I step in as the presenter because I form relationships with many of these ministers. I call them and I say, I need you on my show for this and this, and they come in. So that's the benefits. For me, those are the benefits I've seen of having the the relationship with, of course, it's unfortunate for the people that don't, and it's unfair on them. Because imagine you are coming in and you have not really built any relationship, but you need to have an interview with Modli Gungubele or Gwede Matash or Ino Kotoma. It's unfair that they will only speak to Clement because Clement has their number and can quickly exactly. give them a call, right? Yeah. But I have I have had I wouldn't say I'm, I'm friends with any politician, but mm. I have some politicians that I have a good relationship with. Mm. I have some politicians that I've gone and I've had dinner with, you mm. know, um, and we we shared a bottle of wine and we had conversations. And if you, if I tell you what those politicians are and you listen to the interviews I've done with them, mm. you would never think that I've ever had a sit down with them and we mm. were sharing a laughter. Mm. And it's something that I always tell listeners that we separate our jobs from our day-to-day lives. Yeah. Look at what happens in parliament when Julius Malema fights with Balek Ambed. And then mm. you see them at a dinner, yeah. right? <laughs> and then they're holding hands. <laughs> yeah. Now you are confused. What's going on here, right? Yeah. And those are people that literally know how to separate their personal lives from the work at hand. Mm. The only issue, though, with our job 
is that there's a perception that can be created if Clement is seen with Pule Mabe and they are parting up mm. in New York, mm. you know, there's a perception that is created. And unfortunately in our industry, or fortunately, um, even in the judiciary, you've got to be seen to be independent. To be independent it's not enough exactly. for yeah. me as Clement to say, I'm independent, yeah. I've got to be seen. So perception matters heavily when it comes mm. to our industry. So. I think we have a responsibility to balance those relationships so that we balance the perception that may be created because of that relationship. But if you have a relationship with someone and you bring them on air and you still ask them the tough questions, mm. then you are managing it well because you're not allowing that relationship to cloud you know, this interview in question and, 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 and the opportunity you have to hold them accountable. Yeah, yeah. No, I... I... I, I appreciate that. And I think also what you mentioned about the media should be seen to be independent is extremely crucial. I'm not going to lie. If I saw Instagram stories of you parting it up with Pule Mabe in New York, <laughs> I probably won't take any interview you do with him seriously, right? Because I'm thinking, they're friends. <laughs> it's like they go clubbing together. So, you know, like what, what is he going to ask him? And I think even if you were to actually get him on your show and ask substantive questions, people will still find fault in whatever you ask, right? So I think it, I think it is important for journalists to cover them, to cover the integrity, even in, even in that to say, it's not enough that I can do that and then come and be objective, but then maybe let me not be seen doing that because that definitely significantly clouds um, your objectivity. And at the end of the day, you are serving a public interest, right? And so when the public no longer sees you as credible, because a big part of the selling point of agenda is credibility. There's a lot of you. That's all we right? have. There's a lot of you. Exactly. Yeah. But only, but, but there's, not a, there's not a lot of you who are credible with a lot of people, right? So that's, that's really something to sell. And, and on, on that point, you, you had a, um, a, an, op an open line sometime last week, I think it was two weeks back, where the open line was heavily focused on um, certain callers who were sort of trying to raise points about um, the public's growing distrust with the media, but particularly the traditional media. I know one of the one of the callers um, spoke about Joe Rogan, and I literally laughed to myself because I'm thinking, number one, why would you want to get your news from Joe Rogan, <laughs> and and like like how is Joe Rogan a credible person to be dispensing news? And the, the the other idea that came up was um, sort of the idea of money. Well, the, the the thing that came up to me was the idea of money, right? If if if, if people are accusing you, Clement, of taking certain positions or advocating certain things because you want to appease your your advertisers so they can continue advertising, make more money, make this, make prime media more money. For me, it doesn't make sense that the same argument doesn't apply to me who has an independent podcast or a Joe Rogan who has a one hundred million rand contract with Spotify, right? If, if the argument is that prime media takes certain positions or makes certain editorial decisions based on pleasing advertisers, how is that same argument not applied to someone who's an independent um, like media person or an independent podcaster? Because even they themselves are driven by like money because I need to have these sponsorships. So, and even if it means that I need to rile people up on, on nothing, even if it, make, it means I need to anger people up on nothing, as long as it's bringing listenerships and it's bringing sponsorships, then that serves my interest as well. And that's why I took significant 
issue most especially with the caller who mentioned joe rogan because i thought to myself joe rogan has a hundred million a hundred million dollar partnership with spotify he will say anything to get those because i think he has like a listenership of 11 million people he will say absolutely anything to make sure that he retains that, that listenership of 11 million people. And that doesn't necessarily mean he's being free, doesn't mean he's being fair, doesn't mean he's being objective, right? Because ultimately, across the board, you are dealing with um, a capitalist incentive where, where both institutions are trying to make money. But the question that I want to direct to you, the question I want to direct to you is that how do news corporations straddle that line of having to keep the lights on, which means having to have a constant inflow of advertisers. And Prime Media knows that very well, because I think it like, I think 702 makes the most money of any talk show um, station in South Africa, but also also having to be independent. And I, you, the first thing you're probably going to tell me is that the big bosses don't interfere with uh, your producers and what you drive on the show. But like, is that actually the case? And also, maybe the, the more pointed question is that, when you and your team of producers are sitting down and planning stories, are you not thinking, you know, what's going to increase our, our listenership, what's going to increase our numbers, make the big bosses happy, you know, we, got, we get, you know, nice uh, paychecks at the, at the end of the year. Like, like how, how are those kind of decisions we make and how do you go through that kind of thinking? So, so there's, this, <laughs> there's this idea that... Um, you know, there's a call that comes from the 10th floor or 5th floor to the <laughs> CEO's office and then Clement, uh, don't do that interview or don't talk about that. Listen, I have never gotten anything like that. I am mm. in my years of ex In fact, I have had an instance where I worked not at 702, mm -hmm. at another place of work where the boss mm -hmm. was in the Sunday papers. Mm -hmm. um, and that was my first ever, ever experience with influence from management mm -hmm. where the big boss was in the, in the Sunday papers. And I remember I was working with, um, a friend of mine, um, at that station. Um, and, I and think, the friend was I, in the I, I think I know what you're talking about. <laughs> and my friend, and my friend was reading the news and, and he wanted to run the story, you know, mm -hmm. and the boss was like, nope. Mm -hmm you're not running the story, right? Mm. And I remember my friend putting up like a, a defense, like a, mm. putting up a fight and saying, no, we have to. Um, and the guy was like, no. So that was my first experience with interference because, and then I worked for a 7 and of course, interference was galore. I mean, when Tabisi <laughs> Jonas, Tabisi yeah. Jonas revealed um, that the group just offered him uh, 500 million rand or so. Yeah. I mean, we were told that in, in seven, we are not running that story. He's lying. And I remember we were mm. in a meeting with the editors fighting and saying, what do you base that on? And they said, no, the group just told us like, yeah, let them come on air and say mm. that. But that doesn't mean mm. we stop running that story. So at 702, how does it work? One thing you always need to understand about whether it's the podcast, Joe Rogan or whoever, it's a radio station, it's a, it's a business. Exactly. We need to get paid at the yeah. end of the day. How do we get paid? We need to get clients to come and buy space on our shows, to come and advertise so that we get paid. So that's the first thing. But parallel to that, when you are doing talk radio, the you spoke earlier about credibility and how that's our currency as journalists. Mm -hmm. Editorial integrity is the currency of any talk radio station. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah. If you have a talk radio station that's going to tinker on editorial integrity, it's not going to go anywhere. Mm-hmm. And that's what 702 understands. From the days of Abu Ridi, Abu Eusebius, I have Abu John Roby, I have never had any of them even make a suggestive statement that um, they have been put in a position where they're unable to raise certain issues. Mm-hmm. Now, how do we... Here's how we are insulated as the presenters from the commercial side of the business. Because once you get presenters involved in commercial issues, now you are getting us to start thinking commercial and think about what we say, what we don't say, that may impact on the financial books of the business. So we are not involved there. And here's how we get insulated. We've got... At 702, we've got programming manager and we've got a station manager. Mm -hmm. And we've got a programming manager who deals with sales. If, for instance, BMW wants to buy space on my show, they don't just throw that at me and say, you're going to be talking to BMW about sustainable cars and you know, mm-hmm. environmentally friendly product. No, they bring me in on the conversation and say, BMW contacted us. They want to buy an hour on your show. Yeah. They want to talk about this. Do you, is this something that you, as the presenter and as the producers, think it makes editorial sense? Mm. And we say to the sales team and the product manager, no, BMW can do it. Or yes, this is how we can frame it so that mm. it is not too overly commercialized. Yeah. It makes sense for us. It's a conversation that we would have on a normal day. I'll give you yeah. a quick example. Anglo-American bought space on my show last week. Mm. An Anglo-American wanted to come and have a conversation about this new hydrogen truck that they were launching. And me and the producer of the show said, it's not going to work because that's not what we would ordinarily talk about on the show. Mm. Like imagine talking mm. about Sibanya Stillwater, any mining company <laughs> launching a truck. <laughs> that's not how it works. Yeah. So then yeah. we tell them that, no, let's talk about sustainability in mining. Let's talk mm. about the just transition, like getting more um, into uh, moving away from fossil fuel. Let's talk mm. about how the mining industry then transitions from that you know, let's look at COP26, the commitments that the country has made to COP26 um, mm. and the, the mining industry and the contribution that it has in making sure that we reduce our carbon dioxide and yeah. our emissions. So then that's where we then tell the sales team, this is the conversation we can have. And they must go back and sell it back to Anglo-American and say, mm. this mm. is how we can have the conversation. So that's how we get insulated. I have never received a call from management or been influenced even indirectly because they yeah. know that it wouldn't work. Um, mm, mm. If you listen, I mean, Bongani has interviewed the CEO. Um, I have interviewed the editor-in-chief of EWN. UCBS has interviewed the editor-in-chief of EWN. Mm. Um, probably at some point interviewed the station manager as well. We are so lucky to have even station managers who understand that they have to be held accountable even by us, yeah. right? And they are our bosses. And listen, it's very uncomfortable to do it. Mm. But we have a responsibility. We have a job to do. They understand it and we understand it. And that's why we're able to meet each other halfway. And I think that's how you maintain. Yes, we need a business. We need money to come in. We need this Mm -hmm. money from Anglo-American. As a presenter, I'm not just going to say, no, I can't have that conversation. No, we need Mm -hmm. the money. How do we have a conversation that that Lindo is going to think, ah, that makes sense. Mm-hmm. That is not too over commercial. Mm-hmm. That actually makes me, you know, think critically about sustainability in mining um, and mining companies contributing uh, to 
just declining uh, their emission. And if we can have that conversation, that makes sense to my listener and makes editorial sense. I'm happy to have any other company come on the show for an hour. Perfect. Perfect. I think that, that, that makes sort of sense because I, you know, I'm, I'm going to be honest, that's something that really plagues my mind a lot because I'm thinking these folks are, and, and, and as much as, and I think also it, um, I think hampers my listening experience as well. Um, in that every time I'm listening to like a segment or anything like that, especially a sponsored segment, you know, if it's just an ad running, whatever, especially a, a sponsored segment, yeah. I'm thinking, uh, you know, are you, are you really asking what you should be asking? Or are you thinking about, let me not piss off, let me not piss off the CEO, <laughs> you know, because <laughs> I want to negotiate contracts. Yes. And by the way, um, we've had instances where there's a big brand that's spending like millions of rands on the station mm. um, that is involved in controversy. And we go hard. Mm. Um, we've never been told to soften up on it. I mean, I remember when Outsurance, when Katlaho, is it Katlaho Maboy, the presenter yeah. for Expresso? Yeah. When he was involved in that drama in the beginning, mm. Um, and I remember I raised it on the open line and, and, and I, I was raising questions around outsurance and what they're mm. going to do. And I remember a listener saying, hey, when uh, you are going to lose your job, <laughs> yeah, ads from outsurance every single five minutes, every single hour on, on this station, mm. um, how do you then become so critical of them? But that's not our job. APSA, Standard Bank, mm. if they're involved in controversy, our job is not to make considerations about how much money they're spending with the business. Mm. Our job, and the reason actually those brands actually even come to 702 is because they trust in that editorial integrity. It's because mm. they trust that we have built a listenership, right? Mm. That has expectations, right, of us uh, to be hard, uh, you know, to be hard and clear on anyone or any mm. person or any brand regardless of how big they are regardless of how they're spending money the influence they have i mean num did you know num actually owns a stake on 702 mm. but have you had us really become so soft on num yeah we don't yeah. but they own a stake as a union mm. um they own a stake on mm. 702 i'm not sure how much probably 30 percent. i'm not so sure how much they, yeah. they own but there are there are other people you can think of who are shareholders you know, who own shares at Prime Media, mm. we don't even know some of them because nobody has ever said to exactly. Them, yeah. what you say about these people that's, because they own That's your boss. Yeah. yeah. Okay. No, that's that, that that's a fantastic answer. Um yeah, I think I think we've we've sort of trotted through the the, the things that I, I wanted to pick your brain about. Thank you so much, Clement, for for making time. I think I'm actually on the hour <laughs> exact. Um, but yeah, th uh, thank you so much. Your um, expertise is invaluable. I thoroughly, thoroughly enjoy your show. I think you're doing, um, besides doing fantastic work, I think you're doing important work as well. Um, and yeah, thank you so much for, for, for making time. No, thank you, Lindo. Thank you for the invite. And, and thank you for listening. Uh, we're not always going to get it right. Uh, <laughs> yeah. But, but, but I, we're going I to have, learn. I, I have had to call you out a couple of times <laughs> on that. So, and, and at least and, and and that, that relationship ex exists yeah. as well. Yeah. yeah, and that's the nature of radio. I always even tell the listeners that I'm not always going to get everything right. My mm. viewpoint or opinion is not always going to be the best. Um, so... 
it it's okay to actually call Clement out, you know, mm. and that's what I like about my listeners. Abu Kustas, mm. they'll call it and say, no, but you yeah. this, you know, <laughs> yeah. and I like that because otherwise, if you have a radio where a presenter just goes on and on and on and is not mm. challenged, that is a problem. And it's, it's not enjoyable. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, so, yeah. yeah. But, but thank you. Thank you for, for inviting me. It was All fun. Right.